coming November 15th, a brand new season of That's What She Did podcast. We'll be bringing you 10 inspiring women you probably don't already know. On this new season of the podcast, we're shining a light on women that are at the intersection of activism and storytelling. They're fearlessly using their art, expression, and personal narratives to change the world. You're going to hear from actors and playwrights, poets and artists, filmmakers and authors. There are women unapologetically challenging the status quo, and you need to hear their stories. Prepare to be inspired. This season, our fourth, is going to be pure fire. You don't want to miss this. Find it wherever you get your podcasts or on our website. That's what she did podcast.com. Welcome inspiration junkies to season four of That's What She Did podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. This was a show that started purely as an experiment to see if there was an audience out there and really so I could learn how to podcast. And here we are, it's season four and we're going strong. Before we get started, I want to just thank you. Thank you for being listeners and supporters of the show. Thank you for sharing it. Because of you, this show is now being downloaded across 14 different countries and I can't thank you enough. Please continue to share this show with your friends and family and anybody you think might find value here. This is a show about the incredible women across the world who are doing wonderful, impactful, amazing things, but they don't get the shine that they deserve. These are the superstars that you've probably never heard of but need to know. And this week, I am so happy to kick off this season with our first literal and figurative superstar. We have Ian Fields Stewart. As a performer, you may have seen Ian on the show Pose, the Golden Globe nominated hit show from the FX network. Ian Fields Stewart is a black, queer, and trans feminine New York based storyteller working at the intersection of theater and activism. Their work and she are dedicated to interrupting the exclusivity of luxury by making things like entertainment, nourishment, and self-care accessible to the most marginalized in their community. She's appeared in publications across New York City and can be found on BuzzFeed, LGBT, GLAAD, Inside Edition, among others, and various podcasts. As founder of The Ochre Project, a partnership facilitated by EAN, funded by Black Trans Solidarity Fund and a group of Black trans chefs, that aims to bring home-cooked, healthy, and culturally specific meals to Black trans people in New York City. I'm so excited to have her as a guest on this show. She is dynamic, she's powerful, she's bold, and she's doing really cool things on and off the stage. Thank you for joining us today, everyone. I hope you love this episode as much as I do, and I hope that you will support Ian and her work with The Ochre Project. Be sure to check the show notes for opportunities to connect with Ian and the work that they're doing all over New York City and beyond. She has a big vision and a lot to do. So let's get started. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to season four of That's What She Did podcast. And for those of you that caught this episode over on the Skin You're In podcast, thanks for joining us here and welcome. 
Today, I'm excited to have for you Ian Field Stewart, activist and storyteller, and really talented performer. <laughs> and, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, activist, like just doing all kinds of really incredible things in the world that we are going to talk about today. So, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy you're here. And thanks again for making time. I know you've been traveling and you have theater stuff coming up and different performances. <laughs> and, and so I really appreciate you making time for, for us and, and this audience. Of course. My pleasure. Thanks. Um, so I want, to, I want to try to touch on all of the, the major things that you're doing. Um, I know that it's a lot, but let's just sort of start with performing. You're a performer, you, you're in theater, you've been in television shows, you're doing all kinds of film projects and all kinds of different things. And I'm curious to know, when did you know that you wanted to be a performer? When did you know that you were going into the arts? Oh, I, I, I'm glad you asked this question, actually. Someone just the other day, literally yesterday, was asking me um, the same question. And so I have an answer ready-made. Um, <laughs> But I started dancing at the age of four. I started in ballet and pretty much that was when I knew. I have really only ever like said that I was gonna do like two other different careers. One of them was like when I was in third grade, I was like, I'm gonna be a chemist. And I wanted to be a chemist because I liked mixing potions together and that was my interpretation of what chemists was and chem being a chemist was and then um, well, it's not wrong <laughs> it's not wrong no, no but then I learned that math was involved and my dream quickly died um, and then because I just I, I knew that nothing that I could ever do for the rest of my life would involve math um, uh, and then I uh, when and then I also considered a, a career in fashion um, I knew that I didn't have the sewing skills to be a fashion designer, but I thought maybe I'll be, you know, a fashion merchandiser. And so when I was visiting New York, um, I'm pretty sure this was when I first came to New York, uh, just as a tourist. And I sat in at the Fashion Institute for Design and Merchandising. They're sort of like, you know, welcome to our school. And here's an array of like, you know, multicultural students like sprawled across the campus and here's what they do you know it's like those videos that they have to like, get you excited about their school yeah and I sat down and I watched it and part halfway through I was just like this is not at all what I'm interested in doing I know that I can't do this and so those have been the only two other things that I considered and throughout all of them I always knew that I was going to be doing theater in some capacity so it's it's funny because I think that um I've always had a great um it's always been part of like my pride in myself and my stability that I've always known what I wanted to do um I think that you know a much younger arrogant and like leaning into my triple leoness uh version of me definitely you know would be yeah, kind of came from this attitude of like oh thank god that I know what I want to do you know I have a clear vision for my future you know mm -hmm. And so, uh, so that has always been kind of a point of pride for me. Now, obviously, the joke was on me because I thought that I was going to be like, you know, a Broadway star and I was going to go to the big, like the big Broadway lights and that was going to be my dream. And I think that the older that I've gotten and the more that I've actually learned about like the kind of work that is 
actually happening on Broadway and the the kind of stories that people are interested in telling there, the less invested I am in in that kind of um, commercial success. Mm-hmm. At this stage in your career, you're very involved in activism. In fact, I, I think I saw somewhere that you call yourself an activist. Is that, is yes, that right? an actor. That's my that's my that's my social media handle is the free actor. This the free activist. Yeah, and um, yes. you've talked about how your work is. Yes, you perform and and you're definitely in the arts and in theater, but your work is really about the intersection of theater and activism. Absolutely. What does that mean? Um, well, it comes out of a lot of different things. I think that um, part of it is that essentially any, it's sort of like, it's sort of um, an insight into how I approach um, my craft uh, as an actor is that everything that I do is a, there is a lens through which I'm approaching it that is about um, activism and social justice work and sort of assessing how, um, how I am moving through the work and how I'm seeing it function in the larger society. So the responsibility that I have as a storyteller to the, to the story and the plot, but also to the greater world surrounding me. And so I think that that's, that's one aspect of it. I think that another aspect of it is that I genuinely am a community organizer who came to community organizing through the lens of someone who wanted to be on Broadway, you know, mm-hmm. and a lot of the reason that I came to community organizing in the first place was because the predominantly white institution that I was a part of refused to kind of see me and cast me in ways that actually helped me to grow and refused to really invest in me beyond what I was already able to do for myself. You know, I think that for a lot of, uh, for a lot of people who exist at the, um, exist at marginalities, when we go to these, you know, predominantly white institutions or find ourselves in these predominantly white spaces, we sort of, Rather, even if even if it's like we are paying to be taught, we are still expected to be our own teachers, um, as well as the teachers of everybody else. And so I think that in that way, um, me recognizing that my work meets at that intersection is the understanding that whenever I enter a room, I'm bringing social justice and community organizing work with me. That I don't. That's not something that I leave at the door. Um, and I think that also part of that is helpful for me to recognize that there are people who are bringing me that that many people who are bringing me into the room are bringing me in for that very thing. And so mm-hmm. in recognizing that, it also means that, I'm, that I can further advocate for myself to say, you're not going to bring me in just to make me, you know, you're a black trans woman. You're going to, you're not going to just like get, get, get that perspective for free. I do those, I, ha- I am capable of doing those services and I'm very good at it, but that's another check. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to bring me in as an actress and just as an actress, that's what I'm here to do, you know, but you don't get to bring me in as an actress and then sort of manipulate my wisdom out of me. Okay. So let, like, let's talk about that for a second. Um, yeah. I got, that's, that's such a huge issue. I think particularly for the audience that's going to, that listens to this show um, because a lot of them are entrepreneurs or side hustlers or, really fighting to, you know, get ahead in their career and achieve whatever that vision is for them. And 
um, you know, I've sat in rooms. First of all, I've experienced this myself throughout my entire career, but I've also sat with rooms and in masterminds. And there's this frustration of, well, I'm just trying to prove myself. So I'll do this work for a while. And I'm always like, no, girl, you got to charge them. Mm-hmm, absolutely. <laughs> no, you have to stop giving away your value for free. And so I'm curious to know, how did you come to that realization that, you know, sometimes you get asked to come into your room and you're just so excited to finally be seen? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that I just, I think part of it for me was recognizing that I am my soul is not for sale. My beingness is not for sale. That happened, you know, that happened to my ancestors. I've learned, you know, they, they've taught me what I need to know. I'm not selling my beingness, my soul. I'm not selling that to you. What I'm selling to you is I'm selling you, you know, the fun actress who's a great person to have in a room and she's a great talent. That's what I'm selling in an audition. When I'm coming in as, you know, a consultant, I'm selling you, you know, someone who's smart, capable, and who you can rely on to bring you a great, to like, make sure that your work is important and like, is offensive. That's something I'm selling. What I am not selling is someone who is, whose beingness is just readily available to you whenever you want it there. Um, and I think that part of it for me was wrecking, was actually like going to therapy and like, doing the work to kind of, because I think this is something that happens to us, not just in like professional space, but this is something that happens to like women of color and black women specifically, wherever we find ourselves existing openly. You know, there is always someone who, when we are in mixed company, where someone is looking to us either out of the corner of their eye or just looking at us directly and asking us to be the voice of X, Y, Z, you know? And, and I think that, whether you be a queer black woman, a trans black woman, a cis black woman, whoever you may be, right? your um, vision and your beingness and your soul is not for sale. It's not just for public consumption. We are not public commodities that belongs to whoever wants to get a piece of us. If you want to have a piece of my brilliance, then pay for it because you would pay a white person. You would pay, you would pay anyone else for what you're asking me to do. The kind of emotional labor that you're asking me to do, you would pay anyone, you would pay a therapist for that. I am not your therapist. I am not, I do not have that degree. I'm not interested in being that for you. Now, if you cut a check, I'm happy to say, oh, well, Freud might have said this and like bullshit some stuff and I'm good at it. But you know what I'm saying? Like if you're, if you're cutting sure. a check, then that's a different thing because my time is precious to me and my time is worth something. That being said, I think that there is also with that, because I think that, that narrative is, you know, more and more out there. There are more and more people who are having the conversation about like, cut the check and I'll do it. But I think there is also a, another conversation that's worthy of having, particularly for black women, um, around, you know, how we are operating in spaces and, and is the check always worth it? Because sometimes it's not, and that's okay. You know, there are sometimes where it's like, even if you are paying for that, I still get a right to say no. You know, I think there is a, like, I think that the function of capitalism is that we believe that if we've paid for something or if we've given money or if we invested something in it, mm-hmm. that somehow we now have ownership of that. And I think that's a disturbing, you know, trend that is directly out of the, the transatlantic slave trade. And we are, do not need to be a part of that. You know, um, if I am offering a service, you can pay to have that service. 
if you were asking for a service and it's outside of what I normally do or what I have offered you initially, I can decide whether or not I will let you pay me to do that. But I can also say no. And so I think it's, a, it's the duality of all of those things. It's a matter of sort of saying, okay, when I do this, is my soul for sale or is my work for sale? And being able to distinguish between the two is crucial, I think, to making sure that we protect ourselves as um, as women who are making it in this world. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's, I like the way that you frame that, is my soul for sale or is my work for sale? And I agree that there is a very, it, it is a crucial, crucial distinction. Absolutely. Um, so thanks for that. Um, when did you know, when did you, I guess, what was the catalyst for realizing the opportunity uh, that theater, the performing arts provided for you in having an impact and, and incorporating your activism? Well, it actually came, it came out of, I think, as, as most of Black women's and queer people's ingenuity does, it came out of, um, it came out of a deficit. It came out of um, two years into my, into my schooling, realizing that I was just not being seen for what I was capable of. And I knew what was inside me and I knew that I was ready to like cultivate that and grow that strength. And there was just no real investment in that. And that was, um, that was a moment for me. And so I went, I went back to um, my hometown of Birmingham, Alabama for the summer. And I, and I met this woman, Sarah Young, who was, um, a white bisexual woman who was doing some organizing work and she's, and we met and there was just this sort of instant connection. And she said, I think you might be great for this project. And she brought me on and it was this amazing project that we started. Um, and I kind of helped to grow and develop and we went around Alabama collecting the narratives of like queer youth to create a network amongst all of them. And it was such transformative work. And it was, and I come from the school of thinking that if you can do anything besides theater, do it because it's such a hard business. And this was the first time that I had found anything that I could do besides theater. And so I was like, I was, I was shook. I was like, what do I do? You know? Um, so I went back to school um, after the summer was over and um, I started to sort of like repurpose all of my general education courses to serve, you know, sort of um, examining and exploring um, uh, social justice work. And essentially graduated with like two degrees, but one of them isn't like, you know, actually on my degree. But, um, Mm -hmm. and so then kind of from there, it just became a matter of the things that I was thinking and learning. I suddenly had language for Mm -hmm. and people, and then it just became a matter of constantly sort of like talking about that. And, um, and then slowly, but surely the road kind of became clear for me. Um, I'm, I'm like in I'm I'm like a beginning woo woo girl I would say you know I'm not quite all the way in the woo woo but I'm kind of getting there so I guess I guess you could kind of say that I was I was spending several years sort of manifesting um, the road ahead for me you know I was sort of con- conjuring in many ways these um, these ideas into my life and these viewpoints and these philosophies and as I was doing that people began to sort of hear what I was saying and say oh wow, no one's talking about theater in this way. And I want to hear you talk about it more. And so there just kind of became more and more people who were like, yes, I know you're an actress, but I also want to work with you with this other thing that you do, which is like how you speak and think and 
and that and sort of out of that became my consulting work. Um, and so that for me is kind of how I've navigated everything. Now, performing is absolutely sort of like my heart song, and that's where my heart absolutely lies. And it's sort of always my hope that, you know, whenever, whatever I bring to a role, I'm always bringing myself. In many ways, that's just what happens in general. Like, you know, you can't place a Black trans woman center stage and not have it be political. There's just no way for it not to happen, mm-hmm. you know? Our bodies are always politicized, yeah. you know? Um, and so that's kind of been the journey for me is sort of taking ownership of that politicalization of my body and allowing that to, and allowing that to inform and empower my work as opposed to um, sort of restrict and isolate me. Mm-hmm. What is it particularly about theater and acting, performing, that is a particular fit for activism? Um, so I think this is this actually goes to the very core of what theater is. I mean, we are, mm-hmm. at the core of who we are, we are storytellers. And storytelling is something that is one of, if not the most, it is one of the most indigenous and ancestral practices available to us. You know, our very language that we use comes out of storytelling. The whole reason that we have language is because something happened and someone wanted to tell someone about it and explain what had happened, you know? And I think that at the end of the day, while theater, film, and TV, and all of these sort of things have become, yes, they've become their own industry and their own corporatization, at the core of who we are, we are people who play make-believe for a living. We are people who create stories and share them with others. And we are, we are masters, hopefully, at, <laughs> you know, at manifesting emotions in others. That is our job. Our job, like, in, like you know, there, I mean, in, in many of, like, sort of, when you go back and sort of, like, if you do your, your theater history, I mean, during the time when Shakespeare was writing, um, and I only use your Shakespeare because he's such a common name, mm-hmm. but, you know, at the time that Shakespeare was writing plays, actors were on the same level as sex workers, which I'm very pro-sex work, so that's not an issue for me, and I think that both are, like, highly, you know, important work, mm-hmm. like, both are, both are important works to be a part of, but, um, you know, we were not considered like highbrow. Theater was not considered highbrow. What we do was not considered highbrow because we were considered you know, master manipulators because we were able to manipulate these emotions out of people. And I think that at the core of that is not manipulation, but is, is innovation, right? We are inspiring innovation and inspiring ideas. You know, there, there has, I mean, think of, a you know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of like, you know, the can't like, love and basketball or you know poetic you know poetic justice like any of these like huge films that have like shaped our communities like at the core of them they are you know they are they are there to like they're they're just people playing make-believe and we all bought into what they were making believe and it informed us in some way mm-hmm. like you know what I'm saying? i mean listen for me as a queer woman Said it like seeing Queen Latifah and set it off was all that I needed to know to know that whew, <laughs> hello the queer life was for me you know <laughs> so I think that like 
that like that in and of itself is its own innovation, its own moment in um, its it's it, its own manifestation. I mean, I think about you know the the only Cinderella that I will ever recognize, Brandy and Whitney Houston. You know <laughs> that like, but that film has. I mean, I've talked I've talked about that film so many times, like so many podcasts and so many like just scenarios but like seriously that film was like a serious foundation of how I understand love in the world Mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying like that was like a real moment a real moment for me where it was like I suddenly see like when I look back on my life and I look back on kind of the narratives that I have like I suddenly understand some real foundational things about how I was growing up understanding love and that's the power that we have as storytellers and I think that anything that is like doing, like that's community organizing, you know, where you are literally bringing people together in like theater, theater, live theater, especially, and also film and TV in some ways, you know, all of them in various ways, but all of them bring together an audience, a group of people, a community. They organize a community together around a central idea, an essential narrative. And what could be more activist than that? What could be more social justice than that? Than something that is able to bring people of so many different walks of life together to experience and share in an idea. And that's what we do. And that's the responsibility that I feel that we have as storytellers and as actors and actresses and actresses and whoever we may, whoever we may identify, you know, producers, directors. And all the rest of it is just fluff, you know? And that for me is kind of where my activism comes in. I think it's like, it's like my craft is so important to me and it is truly my spiritual work. Mm-hmm. That's what my craft is to me. And I take it, I take it very seriously. Yeah. As a, a quick aside, I heard the other day that they're making, well, they're talking about making a remake of Set It Off and I'm not sure how I feel about that. <laughs> I I don't know what that means. Yeah. I I refuse. I refuse to acknowledge such a thing. Yeah. <laughs> with who? With no, why? I, with, with, it needs to be renamed. Yeah. I you know it's there. My reaction initially was, but why? There are so few things that are just perfect as they are. Why would you take that? Like, <laughs> I just I have to ask like for why and for what reason. Yeah. Good like, question. Oh, that's just. The, the many remakes that are like, and, 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 and just to kind of harness that moment, right? Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the fact that, like, what does that say about our current? I think that the, I think I truly believe that, like, the abundance of, you know, great movie remakes that is going on right now and the number of things that are being remade speaks to our current political climate. Because all of us are experiencing a nostalgia for another time. Uh-huh. I think that it, speak, it speaks to the nostalgia that we have for this, you know, pseudo, you know, raceless, you know, race, racismless time that was like the 90s. Like, I think the obsession with the 90s is very much linked to this idea that, you know, we, that like racism just didn't exist at that time. Like we were finally free of it. And then just came, it's rear its naughty head again, mm-hmm. you know? And obviously, you know, anyone who has like a drop of melanin in their skin knows that not to be true. But, but also there was this sort of this golden age of like black television and this emergence of so many incredible, like 
black, 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 blackity black stories, you know, on television. And the narrative of like remaking all of those things and, you know, the fact that the cast of Girlfriends is going to be on blackish, you know, all of these, all of these things that are kind of hearkening back to a different time speaks to where we are as a society in this moment. It also speaks to the fact that we have lost a lot of creativity and we no longer value innovation and new stories. You know, it's really hard right now in the industry for anyone to tell a new story. Mm-hmm. People are terrified of it. People want to go with what they know. And it's because of this capitalization on storytelling and this, this, and I think that, like, so it's like, it, I think that in many ways, the stories that, that do well are, are evocative and clear and are clear messages about where we are as a climate and as a people. I mean, most historians are using theater and film and TV and these artifacts from art, from the arts, as a way to understand the history of the world. Like we are literally, we are literally archivists. We are, we are like, you know, the, the, like we are political um, investigators. We are, you know, romantics. We are matchmakers. We are all of these various things all in one big, one storytelling idea, you know? Um, so our work is incredibly important and it speaks to, it speaks to where we are at. I mean, even thinking about, you know, the fact that um, Travante Rhodes, like did this phenomenal job in Moonlight and yet like, which like won an Oscar, by the way, they tried to stop it from it, but they won the Oscar. And yet even in that, like seeing how, I mean, not, and like, you know, this is a, this is more of an intimate community conversation, but you know, seeing how black folks are real, like, like seeing like the, the kind of celebration that Travante got for his role in Bird Box, as opposed to the kind of celebration he got for his role in Moonlight, which I'm sorry, but between those two films, Moonlight for me is the clearly superior story Mm -hmm. as far as its importance and what it was doing and the kind of newness that it was bringing to to the, to the portrayal of black men in the media. You know, all these conversations about black men in media and, and people acted like Travante hadn't done anything until Bird Box, and that is linked to a narrative around queer bodies. You know, I think I think that um, in any way you slice it, storytelling can always tell always tells a much greater story than we think it does. Mm-hmm. You know, I always I always say this about you know a, a, a show that I actually really like <laughs> that everyone's kind of surprised when I say it, but is like Legally Blonde the musical. I actually love that music. I think that the storytelling that that musical does is really great. And I think that also a story about a blonde white girl who gets accepted to an Ivy League college on the basis of multiculturalism is only as shallow as you allow it to be. Mm. Yeah, you know what I'm yeah. saying? I hadn't considered that. I love that, that, um, that, that one as well. I've seen it several times. And on, on a certain level, I felt almost guilty for liking it so much because to your point, it's oh, about yeah. this, you know, blonde, wealthy white woman that gets into an elite college on, you know, a kind of a ridiculous premise. Literally on yeah. the basis of multiculturalism. <laughs> ridiculous premise. 
And I actually hadn't taken the time to think about I, it, but now that you pointed out, yeah, you're right. You, you know what I'm saying? It's like, everyone says, oh, it's just a fluff musical. And it's just like, a, white, a blonde white woman is accepted to an Ivy League college on the grounds of multiculturalism. And we just saw how we just had a conversation about Aunt Becky buying her child's way into an mm-hmm. Ivy League college. What exactly is shallow about that story and not relevant to the, like, literally what is happening right now? Yeah, it's a good point. And I think, you know, it's a good point that it's not just entertainment. It's not. It always, like, stories always reveal much more than we think about than we think they do. And what's even more frightening is that it often reveals more about the person telling the story and the person, like, and, and, and <laughs> while revealing what, what, how the person who's listening to it, that story, you know, it's, I mean, it, 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 what you choose to watch and what you choose to bring into your life, you know, the fact that we never see, you know, the fact that we are seeing so many interracial couples on television that are not actually, that are really not actually interracial. They're just black and white couples because we're not actually seeing mm-hmm. like because we have this conversation about interracial dating i mean i think it was on own that they had just had you know an episode of, with um angelica ross on it and she and they were talking about interracial dating right but and i i kind of rolled my mm-hmm. eyes when i saw that because i was just like oh lord you know <laughs> um you know and as the product of like an interracial relationship i feel more than qualified to say nauseous that we we've seen enough of that you know because it's never actually about right. like interracial dating it's about how do we make ourselves okay with the fact that we want to date white people mm-hmm. i mean there's literally a show on broadway called play play right now that is all about quote-unquote interracial dating and what it is actually about is about for i mean in my opinion but i think it also opinion of many people is about first of all abusing black women's bodies on stage and for the entertainment of white folks which is not revolutionary or radical at all But also it's about making the writer and anyone who has seen the piece who is like, if not, if not exclusively majority, mostly dating white people. Okay. With it. Mm. And I don't feel that that's a necessarily interesting story. I think that we have plenty of stories that tell us like that. It's really nice and wonderful to date white people. For, and specifically for black people to date white people. But, yeah. but I think that is all part of the political narrative, right? Because right. right now we are seeing so many tensions exist between, you know, black, the black community and the white community, which has always fucking existed because white people, slavery, we don't need to go into that. We understand what's right. up, you know? Right. But I think that it is, it is political that we are not seeing black relationships on. It is political that every, you know, black queer person that we are seeing represented in the mainstream media is attached to a white person. It is political. It is political. It is part of the political narrative that continues to say that queerness and blackness are two different things. When in fact, queerness and blackness are inextricably linked. You know, it is part of the political narrative that we are seeing, you know, women like me, light-skinned Black women, be the center of the work that we do while shitting on and disenfranchising unambiguously Black women. It's because we don't actually, it's, because, it's not because the society is learning to like celebrate Black women, it's that we are celebrating the kind of Black, it's that we, the society, is mm-hmm. celebrating and centering Blackness that feels approachable and manageable and as close to whiteness as it can be. We are not celebrating, uh, I mean, I, 
as an individual and not, not to be like, I'm totally bereft of any issues because I am a light skinned black woman and I come with my issues and I, I'm aware of that, you know, and I, that's something that's something that I will always have to be working on and interrogating within myself. But there is absolutely a societal anti-blackness that disenfranchises and decenters unambiguous blackness. And for me, if you love blackness and black people, you are celebrating and centering unambiguous blackness in all that you do. And so when I step into the, my roles as like a director or a writer, those are the people that I am privileging and casting in my work. You know, yeah. I am privileging the stories and the narratives of unambiguous black women and people because those are the narratives that need to be seen on stage. And that is political. It is political for me to center, you know, fat or like plus size or um, full figured, whatever word feels right. It's political for me to center those bodies in my work and decenter bodies like mine in my work. It is political for me to center trans, trans bodies in my work and trans black bodies in my work. You know, all of those things are necessary and political choices that we make in the stories we tell because it reveals how we see the world and what kind of world we want to see. Because if we, I mean, and as going back to slave play, if we cannot, once again, we are playing make-believe. If we can't get free in our imagination, how the heck are we going to get free anywhere else? Yeah. That's a crucial point. Agree. A hundred percent. I feel like I could talk to you on this subject for days and days. (laughs) (laughs) And I have, I have. <laughs> but I do want to make sure that we have time to talk about the Okra project because I know that is a big piece of your work and I think what you're doing over there is really important and we need to share that out into the world as much as possible. So tell us about the I Okra project. So the Okra project um the Okra project started as um an idea that I had on a couch in um on like December 13th, I believe it was, maybe it was like close to like 15th or something like that. But um, we, I, I essentially, I, I was in a meeting with some, with like with an organizing group and there was a person who was talking over me a lot and I just like got annoyed with their, with that. And so I kind of just like while the meeting was happening, I sort of just disconnected. And I turned to my friend, Nyla Sampson, who was sitting on the couch with me and I said, hey, I have this idea. What do you think of it? She said. Um, and so Nyla had created the Black Trans Solidarity Fund, which was a reparations group um, focused on redistributing um, money from the hands of like uh, cis and non-Black trans folks into back into the hands of Black trans people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I knew that she had that. And I said to her, you know, what if we were to raise money through the Black Trans Solidarity Fund and use the money that we raise to hire um, Black trans chefs to go into the homes of Black trans people and cook for them during the holiday season. And um, so I called my friend um, Malik August, who runs Daddy's Kitchen, and said, are you interested? Malik said yes. And so we sort of the next that was that we I had the meeting with Malik on a Monday. I had the idea on the Sunday. I met with Malik on a Monday over the phone. I put together like you know a bunch of logos and, and images and things like that and language. And then on a Wednesday, we released the idea. 
by that Friday, we had raised $6,000. Oh, wow. Now, we had been anticipating that we were going to raise, like, a cute 500 if not 1000 you know? That was our mm-hmm. hope. Our hope was, like, for 500 We had no idea that this was going to happen. And just over the course of those three days, like, I mean, really over the course of the first day, it just became incredibly clear that what we were creating was something special. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and so at basically ever since then, the money has not stopped coming in. And we said, we're going to do this until the money stops. Since then, our work has expanded in a lot of different ways. Um, we have uh, started branching out into doing community events. We created the International Grocery Fund, which essentially allows us to, like at the, at the moment, for example, we're not, do, we're not doing our direct service work. Um, so we're not actually having our chefs go into people's homes because after like, you know, after six months, six or like seven months of doing this work, when do we stop? Maybe it was eight, maybe it was eight months. I'm not sure. But after so long of doing this work, we had kind of, we just kind of came to realize that it's like, okay, this is, we want to make sure that this is sustainable. And so at the moment we're currently looking for fiscal sponsorship. So we're using the international grocery fund as a way for us to continue um, giving back to the community and making sure that people have like the resources to eat. So basically it is, is that all that people do is like they apply through a link and we just send them 40 bucks um, for groceries that week if they're in trouble. And obviously people can contact us directly and things like that. There have been a lot of different people who have helped us along the way. We've expanded to Philadelphia and doing work in Philly. And that's been really transformative. Um, I want to give a shout out to like our chef, Marcus James, who um, uh, is no longer working with us, but who was central to starting that work. Uh, we brought on a community consultant. Uh, our community organizer who was kind of doing the community work with us and that um, that started out as Casey Cornish and now we have Issa, Issa Sanchez on, on board um, and so it's just and it's all black trans people doing this work together we are exclusive to black trans people and very adamant about that um, which is partly why fiscal sponsorship is taking some time to find because it's important that we find someone who is like Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in aligned with our vision of exclusively serving Black trans people. Can you talk about that for for a moment about why that's absolutely? So um, I mean, with uh, I I know unfortunately I am not sure whether whether um, there are nineteen Black trans women who have been murdered or whether or nineteen trans women who have been murdered this year or whether it's nineteen trans people. Some of the data is getting a little convoluted, mm-hmm. but I would say. I mean, with, with confidence, I can say that at least 17 to 18 of those people who, have, who, have, who are the names that we say who have been murdered this year are exclusively Black trans women. Um, and so as a result of that, it is important to us to center Black trans people because we understand that Black trans women and Black trans people are at the intersection of the most marginalized people. They are the most, we are, we are the most marginalized. We are the most in danger and we are the most in need. Um, because, you know, it, it's that, it's that, which is not, not to play oppression Olympics, but it's, that, it's just that reality of like, okay, when I'm walking into the room, are you discriminating against me because I'm black, because I'm trans, because I'm a black trans woman, because I'm a woman, because I'm, not enough of a woman for you, you know what I'm saying? It's like the, the, the levels to which we are expected to navigate um, this world in this way is, is staggering. And there is just, and there's a need, you know? Um, mm-hmm. uh, 
I, I mentioned that we're creating these community events um, and I wanted to bring them up just because I think it's important that we also talk about the way that we're creating community as well. You know, um, we've created um, a Buy Okra series, which is essentially a series of beauty and wellness events that we're doing every month while we're not doing our direct services. Last month was Beauty by Okra. This month is our Brother by Okra event, which is um, Beauty by Okra was specifically for Black trans women. Brother by Okra is specifically for Black trans men. NB by Okra is, um, or NB Okra is our um, non-binary and gender non-conforming and, uh, event. Um, there's definitely some conversation to be had about that particular event, and we're still in conversation about it because we don't want to kind of uh, just use it, it because obviously, like folks who are gender variant or outside of the, the binary encompasses so many people that it's hard to find sort of one word to like that's snappy enough for an event, um, but but that event is basically open and for and centered around all of our um, gender variants and folks who exist exist outside of the binary, mm-hmm. such as myself. Um, uh, and then uh, the next, and then we're going to be having another uh, beauty biocra event, and then will be our anniversary biocra. So that will be our like our sort of end of the year event um, to celebrate, you know, uh, one full year of us doing this work yeah it's uh it's a little hard for me to believe that it's it's been a year and that's it it with as much of you all have done with this as much as you've led through this project it, it feels like i really um, it's I, been a lot I longer it has felt <laughs> a little bit longer to us too at times. <laughs> <laughs> i appreciate that <laughs> yeah i mean but and i think that this work has been um this work has been uh, crucial and transformative and amazing and and incredibly challenging and difficult because, and not just because, you know, we have to, uh, not just, not just in, in maintaining, like, you know, the high volume of need and meeting that need, but also, you know, in addressing, like, I mean, when we originally started, we said, we're going to like send chefs into people's homes. And then at some point someone was like, well, what if I'm homeless? And we said, duh. Okay. Yeah. That's so true. What was wrong? What's wrong with us? And then it became a matter of, okay, so where do we go? You know, what community centers can we partner with? How do we do this work? And, you know, it became a matter of, like, there's so many different ways in which, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm one, I'm one version of transness, you know, I'm one version of black trans womanhood, you know, I'm not just a trans woman, but I'm a non-binary trans woman and the complications around that. And what does that mean? You know, um, you know, uh, there are, Nyla is a cis, cis black woman and then Issa is a non-binary trans trans person you know what and so what does it mean for us to be in this space and in this uh and how how do we organize with community and how do we organize with community um that resists the narrative that I think a lot of nonprofits who kind of exist within the nonprofit industrial complex are participating in which is the narrative that it's like when I perform a service for you, you owe me in some capacity. But how do we break that cycle and say, no, this is something that we're doing just because it needs to be done. And there's no right. expectation. There's no, like, you know, you need to show us how you need or what you need. Like, there's no need to perform for us. There's just a matter of us showing up for you, you know? Mm-hmm. And that takes work. And it also takes a lot of recognizing that it, that you're not necessarily going to have, like, people pouring back into you in the same way and that not being the expectation. I'm not doing this work because I want a pat on the back. I'm doing this work because it's necessary, you know? Now, 
I'm not going to act like, you know, my ego has, I'm a triple Leo. My ego has absolutely come into play at times. And I have to curb that all of the time to make sure that I'm keeping it real, you know, because sometimes you can be like, this is so hard. And it feels like, you know, am I really, really reaching the people that I want to reach? And am I really doing the work that is like impactful in the ways that I want it to be? But at some point, I think that it's just, I think that when we do the, the quote unquote, the good work, or when we're doing the work that matters or doing this community work, at some point, I think we also have to let go of the idea that anyone owes us anything because we're doing something for them. We have to let go of the idea that we are doing this because we need X, Y, and Z. Yes, it's always important to ask for what you need, but when you are giving to the community, when you are existing, in, when you're being of service, you need to recognize that being of service means that your impact is not always going to be evident to you, but it is, but you have to trust that it's there. Mm-hmm. You know, we've, we've met, you know, there have been times where someone like said to us, my food stamps aren't coming in and I genuinely don't know how I'm going to eat for the week. So it's not even that I need one meal. It's like, I need many meals. And so we, you know, I mean, like, I'm not gonna lie, like we like, and, and I'm happy to ball about this because it's community money. It's not our money. You know, it's community mm-hmm. money. Like we got money. And so we said, okay, we'll bet. So we gonna pay our chefs to like cook, you know, these massive meals for you on one day. So you have leftovers for the next day. And then they'll come in the day after that and cook another meal for you. And that, and that fed that person for that entire week until their food stamps came in, you know, mm-hmm. and moments. And even if it's, if it's, if that was like the first and last time that we ever had any real impact on somebody, that's enough for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just glad to know that, like the, the greatest joy of my life is just being able to, is just being able to like act like a white person and throw money at the problem. <laughs> That's my favorite thing about this, about, about what we've been able to create with Oka Project. It's like, if someone comes to me and it says I'm hungry and they black and trans, I can just be like, Oh girl, why are you hungry? You ain't got to be hungry. Here's a chef or here's 40 bucks. You need, you need more than that. Here's 80 bucks. Here's a hundred bucks, you know? And, and we are able to decide where that money goes. We are able to say, this ain't my, because it's not my money. Yeah. I'm not like that's, people didn't donate to Ian Field Stewart. I wish they would, but they didn't <laughs> donate to Ian Field Stewart. Ian Field Stewart's got bills to pay all the time. But this money that I'm able to give back into the community is what's important to me. You know, it's important to me that we, and we've raised well beyond our $6,000 and have managed to maintain that pretty well throughout our time. You know, that, that money is going back to people who need and deserve it. Yeah, and I think there's, um, I think you touched on it without directly saying it. it it's about um, giving people back agency and saying, like, trusting Absolutely. that they they know what they need and we just have to find a way to give mm-hmm. them what they need and they can be trusted to do what is necessary with that. Absolutely. I mean, there was there was a time that we had a conversation about like, oh, like when we're giving this money away for the International Grocery Fund, you know, is it important for us to know kind of like if they're using it in that way? And the answer was pretty quickly no. Like it isn't it truly doesn't matter to me if we give you forty bucks and you decide that you're gonna like, you know, use that money to go out and like go to the club and throw back some drinks and shake some ass and do whatever you want to do. It doesn't matter to me if you're not using it to buy groceries. Because at the end of the day, I'm not giving you this money so that you can like, I'm like, I don't want you to need this money. Mm-hmm. I don't want any black trans person to need me to send them money from the grocery fund. I would love for us to have like put out this, like to put it like to be like, we're creating the Oprah project. And then for people to be like, 
girl, who needs your damn okra project? We fine. <laughs> and like, we got like a couple shekels. Right. That is the ideal world. I mean, and that's kind of the thing about like how I think nonprofits should be and how when we are not one to be clear, but like how nonprofits should be or how people who are like, you know, in service organizations should be. I am desperately trying to work myself out of a job. I do not want to have to be the founder of the Okra Project. I do not want the oh, and not because I don't want to be in the role that I'm in. Like I love that I I love this work, but also I don't want it to need to exist. Mm-hmm. I don't want there to be hungry people in the world. There is too much money in the world for there to be hungry people. Yes, I just don't like there, that. Just doesn't compute for me. It does not make sense to me that there are people who are living in food deserts mm-hmm. and don't have access to healthy and culturally specific foods. That doesn't make sense to me. I don't agree with that as like a worldview or as something that I just am going to accept. I, in fact, actively refuse to. So I'm going to make sure that we raise this money or Nyla is because Nyla is very good at raising money, you <laughs> yeah. know. But we are going to make sure that we raise that money so that we are putting it back where it belongs because no one should be hungry. No one should be hungry. That just doesn't make sense to me. No one should be starving. It's food. We need it to live. Like it's just like that is the most like ridiculous. Like I remember being in my environmental science class in high school and learning about food deserts and being just like. And, you know, obviously there were people in my life and, and of course, like you learn like the term for something that you have already experienced, you know, mm-hmm. and already like, and the people around you who you love and care about are already experiencing. But then I just remember learning about that. And I was just like, how does this exist? How is this a thing? Yeah. How, how is it, how can people care more about, I don't know what they care about more than, but People just shouldn't be hungry. I just can't say that enough. I think it's just one of the wildest things to me in this world that there are people who have so much money and there are people who have literally nothing and are starving Mm -hmm. for food. There are children, babies who are malnourished. That is not a thing I can live with. I can't accept that. You know, I hear that so deeply. Uh, how can our listeners get in touch and support the Okra Projects? Um, they can follow us on our Instagram and uh, our Twitter at the Okra Project. I'm pretty sure it's just the Okra Project. It might be the Okra Project NYC. Please forgive me. It's I've, I'm I'm always like on our social media, and I will totally forget the tag. It's I'm, I'm the worst. It's okay. I can't believe I we will it, but, link it in the show notes. Yes, <laughs> but it but it is one of those things that I always always forget. Um, but and then and then uh, www.theokraproject.com is another way you can stay connected with us. I think also it would be great to see like this model that is very simple that we created. It's quite simply find someone to raise money, mm-hmm. find someone who's going to come up with the ideas, and find someone who's going to like help you run and stay connected to communities. That's that's our model. And so my hope, it, because uh, because you know we've definitely come under fire for the fact that we do exclusively and specifically serve black trans people um and my my kind of response to that is like this is not an exclusive idea mm-hmm. this is never like you know we don't have a we don't have a trademark on it in fact we hope you steal the idea please like steal the idea please go out and like you know serve whatever community that you belong to i would love to see the latinx version of you know the ochre project pop up mm-hmm. i don't care you know 
like, and, and hey, white trans people, if that means something to you, then you can also, you know, create your own version of, I mean, don't use the name Okra Project because that's just going to get confusing. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, go create your version of the Okra Project. Honestly, if, if because you're white, you'll probably get more money than we do. Mm-hmm. You know, like, for me, this is not something that we are like, this is not something that we, like, you, like, I've told you how I created, how how we created this. It was very much like spur of the moment idea. Hey, you down with that? Yeah. You down with that? Yeah. Let's post about it. Oh, we have, three, we have $6,000. Mm-hmm. You know? Absolutely. Be specific. I mean, the best suggestion that I can give to people who would want to start something like this to be specific because that specificity is how people can trust you. Mm-hmm because they know what your vision is and it's very clear to them what, who you are working for and why you are working for those people, you know? So be specific, raise the money, go out and do it. You know, it's like to maintain, yeah, it can be a lot, but if it, if it means that much to you, make it happen, you know, Mm -hmm. and please stop looking to black people to make the thing, the lit ass things that we do available to everybody. We are not public commodities. Mm-hmm. We have a right to serve our own. We have a right to do that. And it doesn't make us hateful. It doesn't make us evil. It just means that we recognize that we have been through some shit and we need to recover and we are trying to build again. Yeah. That, you know, the work you're doing is so important. And um, I appreciate you sharing your story with us and the story of the Okra Project and encouraging other people to get involved or start their own. Um, I think what you're doing is, if anything, a testament to what the power of just one or a few people coming together can accomplish if they focus and get specific to your point. I appreciate that. Thanks again, Anne, for being here on the podcast with us today and for sharing all this wonderful information. If I could stand up and give you a standing ovation right now, I would do it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. Listeners, make sure you connect with um, Ian over social media and the Okra Project. Get out there, learn some more. If you got it in you, take this model and create something yourself. Or at the very least, if you can support by connecting the project to other people, that can take this model or support it in some way. Yes, yes, that might be the easiest, quickest thing that you can do. So, you know, put your head to get your brain working, figure out how can you support this? Is there someone, you know, in your network that could be really impactful here and make that connection happen? Thanks again for joining us on the show. Ian. and of course, to all my listeners, you know, I love you. You know I appreciate you so much. Thanks for being here. Mm-hmm. This episode, I think, is one of the most important episodes we've done in a while. You know I love all of my guests, but this one is especially important. So I want to encourage everybody listening to this to give it a share. I don't care who you share it with. I don't care what you tell them about it, but just give it a share. Help us get this information out there. And it's, it's really simple for you. All you have to do is hit that share button send it over Twitter, send it over for Facebook, however you want to do it, but get that out there. Thank you. Thank you.